Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be with you again. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We'll be in the book of James this morning, chapter 1. <clears throat> As you find your way there, once you find your place, I want to invite you, uh, if you are able, uh, to stand once more with me as I read for us God's holy and inspired and inerrant word this morning. James chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. God's word says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, To the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to your word, we ask for your spirit's help. Lord, we pray that you would teach us, that you would feed us from your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear everything that you have to say to us this morning. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Be kind. Be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. No, I did not read that off of a bumper sticker in the parking lot. Although it would probably make a pretty good bumper sticker. I think I have seen it on posters. I know I've seen it on coffee mugs. I know I've seen it floating around in different Facebook posts. Uh, maybe you've even seen that phrase on a t-shirt or two, but that, that phrase, that, that sentence, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle, is actually from Plato. Famous philosopher Plato, it's from his book, The Republic. He says, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Well, it's true, isn't it? It's true. Each and every one of us is fighting a hard battle. Whether you're a Christian or not, right? no matter what your race is, no matter what your age is, no matter what your family position is, no matter how much money you have in the bank, every single one of us 
face in our lifetime a series of hard-fought battles. Perhaps your battle is a struggle with health. Perhaps it's money. Maybe your battle this morning is with a sick family member or a loved one. Maybe your hard-fought battle this morning is with an errant child who you love, but you just can't figure out how to help them. Maybe your hard-fought battle this morning is with sin. That thorn in the flesh that the Apostle Paul talks about that just won't go away. Well, whatever your battle is this morning, the truth is, is that every single one of us have them. We all have battles. Maybe you are here this morning and you look at your life right now and you say, you know, uh, everything right now is pretty okay with me. It's Life has been pretty smooth sailing. Well, I would challenge you to look a little bit deeper. Certainly you have struggled with things in the past. Right? Maybe God in His grace to you is uh, giving you a season of calm in your life, but surely you face some type of battle in your past. And I can guarantee you that if you keep breathing, you will face another battle in the future. But here's a question for us this morning. How do Christians face their battles differently than those who don't believe? Can, can we as Christians face our battles differently than those who don't believe? Here's an even bigger question. We believe that God is good and that He is loving and that He is sovereign over all things. And if we believe that God is good and loving and sovereign over all things, then how in the world could He allow His own children to go through the suffering that many of us go through? How in the world could a good and loving and a sovereign God allow His children to face the trials and the battles that we face? Wouldn't a good and loving and sovereign God rescue His children from those battles? Wouldn't He spare them from that kind of suffering? Well, there are a lot of ways that people have sought to answer this question. Some people say that this is proof that God's not real. Because if God was real and if He was sovereign and if He was good, then He would spare us. He would spare His children from trial and suffering in their life and so therefore since he doesn't obviously because we all face trials and difficulty then he must not be real well i don't i don't think that's true some people seek to say well then uh god really isn't he you know he's good and he loves us and he cares for us but you know he really can't do a whole lot his hands are kind of tied and so yeah he has compassion for us in our suffering and he knows he feels our pain and he knows what we're experiencing uh, but he really can't do anything about it. I don't think that's true either. Well, James this morning is, is answering these questions for us. Right? So if you're here this morning and, and you've asked these kinds of questions before, maybe you're here this morning and you, and you feel the weight of those kinds of questions that I just asked, well, I'm glad you're here this morning because James has something to say directly to these questions. As you can see down in verse 1, the book is written by James. Now, who is James? 
Who is James? Well, without taking up too much time, uh, we believe most likely this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph. Now, there is a possibility that James, the son of Alphaeus, one of the twelve disciples, wrote this letter, but most scholars agree that when the time this letter started being circulated, uh, that James, the 12, one of the twelve disciples, wasn't quite well known enough uh, within the broader church uh, to, uh, to have written a letter like this. There's also a possibility that it could have been James, the son of Zebedee, but also most scholars agree that, that he probably couldn't have been the writer of James uh, because uh, he was dead. <laughs> he was dead. He had already been put to death by the time uh, most scholars believe this letter was written. And so uh, we're left kind of by process of elimination in our best understanding that this has to be James, the half-brother of Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph. Now, what do we know about James? Well, we know quite a few things, actually. We know he grew up with Jesus. He was a younger brother of him. Uh, we know that James did not believe in Jesus' claims to be the Messiah uh, until after Jesus was raised from the dead. Okay, so while Jesus was living and while he <clears throat> excuse me, was, was teaching and performing miracles and uh, traveling around in, in, in his earthly ministry, we know that James and his other brothers and sisters did not believe that Jesus was who we said he was. As a matter of fact, there are instances in the Gospels where uh, James and his, his brothers go to Jesus and kind of think that he's a little bit crazy. So in John chapter 7, in John chapter 7, uh, we, we know that his brothers, Jesus' brothers and sisters, did not believe him. They thought he was kind of crazy. But in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he first appeared to the eleven, at the eleven disciples minus the twelve minus Judas who had betrayed Jesus. So he appears to the eleven. And then right after that, he appears to James. He appears to James. And presumably, when Jesus appears to James after his resurrection, something changes in the heart of James. He believes his brother. So much so that look at what he says in verse 1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of you have older brothers, but I can guarantee you it would take a radical change in your heart in order to get you to say that you are a servant of your older brother, right? Something happened in James's life. We also know that James uh, became an influential leader in the early church. So in Acts chapter 12, James appears on the Jerusalem council uh, and he seeks to answer this question of what do we do with all these Gentiles that are coming into the church, right? So James's voice had a lot of weight uh, in the early church, presumably because of his faith, but also because of his relation to Jesus. And when you read the book of James, you're going to notice that the book kind of reads like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. A lot of people actually call James the Proverbs of the New Testament. He talks a lot about all these different topics, and sometimes it's kind of hard to see what relates all these different topics together? It kind of seems like as if James is just throwing these different topics out there and addressing them at random. So he talks about 
riches and poverty. He talks about wisdom and foolishness. He talks about trials and temptations, the use of the tongue, obedience to God's word. He talks about worldliness. He talks about prayer. He talks about all these different topics and all these different issues. But I do think that there is something that ties all of this together. The main idea of the letter that James is writing here is this. Here is how you have a faith that works. Here is what a genuine, steadfast faith in Jesus looks like. James is seeking to show us what it looks like when our faith, where the rubber meets the road, kind of, right? Where our faith is put into practice, what it looks like to have a steadfast faith in Jesus. In our text this morning, James teaches us what it looks like to have a steadfast faith in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our trials. So that brings us back to our big question, how do we know in the midst of hardship that God is good, that he is loving, and that he is sovereign over all things? How can we have joy in the midst of trials well here's how james answers that question the main idea of our passage this morning is kind of the thesis statement of these 11 verses is that god is at work in our trials to sanctify us god is at work in our trials to sanctify us he does not abandon us but gives us good gifts and keeps us in Christ. So that brings us to point one in our text. God works in our trials to sanctify us. God is at work in our trials to sanctify us. If you look down again at verse 2, look at verse 2. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various So first, we see that James opens this letter with a command that we are to count it joy when we face trials in this life. Notice that James does not say if you face trials in this life. So the assumption is that at some point in your life, you are going to face trials. And when you do, Christian, you ought to be joyful in the midst of those trials. Now that in and of itself is already radically different. Radically different than the world, than the way that the world deals with their trials. Right? It's radically different than my own natural sinful inclination in the midst of my trials. My own natural sinful inclination when when a trial comes on me, no matter how small or how great, is to get angry or to throw a pity party. Right? To ask questions about, you know, why, what did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? Right? We, we, get, uh, we get focused on ourselves, we get focused on our own circumstances, and we start to gripe and to complain. But the reality of life is that suffering, suffering does not discriminate. Every single one of us at some point in our life is going to, to face some type of trial, some type of hardship. Now, suffering is not proportional. So some people are going to suffer more than others. And there's no apparent reason as to why that 
is the way that it is. But it does not discriminate. Every single one of us at some point in our life will face a trial. Now for some of us, suffering kind of sneaks up slowly and gradually upon us. While for others of us, suffering just rains down in a torrential flood. No matter how it comes, no matter when it comes, James says here that we are to be joyful in the midst of it. So how in the world can a Christian be joyful in suffering? Well, James answers that question in verses 2 and 3. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you see that progression there in those verses? So there's a testing. And that testing leads to steadfastness. And that steadfastness, when it has its full effect, leads to perfect completion. So there's this progression, this wonderful progression that takes place. So do you see what James is saying here? Do you see what he's saying about our trials? He's he's saying that we as children of God can have joy in the midst of our suffering because God uses our suffering to strengthen our faith and to make us perfectly complete in Him. As a child of God, your suffering is doing something in your life. The trials that you face, no matter how small or how great, those trials are at work in your life and they're doing something, they are not meaningless. Like, like, a, like an athlete who exercises their muscles, right? You put those muscles under strain and under tension and you tear those muscle fibers as you lift weights so that your muscles can grow. That's what trials do. It's like that resistance, that hardship, right? And it's strengthening your faith. Now, sometimes we as Christians can try to comfort ourselves in the midst of our sufferings by saying something like this. We'll say, you know, God won't give us more than we're able to bear. God won't give us more than we're able to handle. Well, church, can we just go ahead and agree to put that unbiblical but very, very popular saying to rest? Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does God promise you that he will not give you more than you can handle. It's not a Bible promise. Well, I think I've read that somewhere before, Nick. Well, it's a misunderstanding. It's a misapplication of an argument the Apostle Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 10. There he's talking about temptation to sin. And what Paul says there is, that God won't allow you to be tempted without providing a way out. That's what he says. He does not say, he does not say that God won't give you more than you can bear. He says that temptation will not overtake you as a believer in Christ to the point where you don't have some type of way out. That's what, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. So it's a misunderstanding and a misapplication of that text to say that God won't give me more than I can handle. Now, in case you think that, you know, I've misunderstood that or I'm just making it up, this truth is all over the Bible. (laughs) Keep your finger in in James chapter 1 and flip back to Psalm 88. 
psalm is a psalm written by the sons of Korah. I'm just going to read through it really quickly. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before You. Let my prayer come before You and incline Your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to hell. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit. I didn't slide into the depths of the pit. I didn't fall into the depths of the pit. You, God, put me there. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in and I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are, you, are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your sinful or your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all the day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me and my companions have become darkness. Period. But God won't give you more than you can handle. No, this is not the cry of a man who is bearing up well under trial or sorrow. This is the cry of a man who is overwhelmed with his suffering. And he feels like his life is in hell and that God has abandoned him. Not just there. Flip over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-10. through This is the Apostle Paul. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us up from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. The Apostle Paul here in Asia faced such horrible suffering right? that he says, I despaired of life itself. Those are not the words of a man. Those are not the words of a man who says, God won't give me more than I can handle. I know there are folks in this room that have faced suffering in the last year that would probably crush most of us here. 
If that's you this morning, take joy. Take joy because what James is showing us is that these trials are too much for us to bear. That suffering that you have faced, it is too much for you to bear. But it is not wasted on God. We serve a God who raises the dead. That suffering, that trial, that hardship in your life, it is working for you what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, an eternal weight of glory. The Apostle Paul says of this, thing, this, this trial that he had faced, this suffering that he had faced that made him despair of life itself, he goes on to call that very trial in chapter 4 a momentary and light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that God is working in his life through that trial. So take heart, brothers and sisters. Rejoice this morning in the midst of your trials because God is at work in you to make you perfect and complete in Him. Now one quick thing here. I think that we can take this to mean and kind of misapply this truth and we can try to bear up underneath the trials in our own strength and act like everything's okay. Now James is not saying here that we have to pretend like our trials don't hurt. It's not what he's saying. Our trials hurt. We don't have to act like everything is fine when it's not. James is saying to us in the middle of our pain that we have something to look towards. That we have someone to place our hope in. And God is right there with us smack dab in the middle of our pain. But Pastor Nick, I just don't see it. I don't, I don't see it. I hear what you're saying, that God is working all these things together for my good, but I just can't see it. Well, what James says next is a direct answer to that question. Look at what he says down in verse 5. That brings us to point 2. God gives us good gifts in the midst of our trials. God gives us good gifts in the midst of our trials. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now you notice what he just said in verse 4, that the result, the outcome of our steadfast, that steadfastness of that trial working in our life is that we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then right after that, James says, now if you do lack wisdom, if you do lack wisdom, ask God and God will give it to you. So how do we know that God loves us and doesn't abandon us in our trials? How can we have joy in the midst of our trials? Well, not only do we know that God is using our trials for our sanctification, but He gives us good gifts in the midst of our trials. James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God, and He gives graciously to all without reproach. Now, before we think that this is just another kind of random shifting of gears in James' thinking, we have to ask the question, what is James talking about when he's saying we need to ask for wisdom? Well, in the Bible, wisdom is, is kind of a two-sided coin. On the one side, we know from the book of Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. So 
uh, in order to be wise, one must fear God. He must know God. We must know his character. We have to know his attributes. We have to know who God is. And without that knowledge of our creator, we cannot be wise in a biblical sense. That's why David says in Psalm 53, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Right? So in order to be wise, it must begin with a knowledge of who God is. Now, the other side of that coin is that wisdom is the ability to see meaning and significance in things. It's the ability to look at the created world around us and to be able to recognize meaning and significance. So if we know God, we must also know his creation. And wisdom is being able to see in a very small and finite way from the perspective of God what wisdom is so if anyone says this person has read the bible a hundred times people say this to me all the time right this person has read the bible a hundred times now they're not a believer they don't believe that god is real right they don't go to church or anything like that but they've they've read the bible a hundred times and they can argue every point of it or they can argue against every point of it well if that's the case then what you've described to me is not a wise person it might be a knowledgeable person but it's certainly not a wise person in the biblical sense A wise person knows the voice of his creator and knows how to employ the Bible in order to understand life, in order to understand the world around us in such a way that we use the Bible to help us navigate through the twists and through the turns of life. So understanding that's what James means when he says that we should ask for wisdom is really incredible, right? It's incredible. James is saying, if you lack understanding of how your trials are working for your good, all you have to do is ask the Lord. Just ask God. If you feel like you are lost in your suffering, if you feel like you can't tell which way is up and which way is down, then you can go to our good and our omniscient Savior, and you can ask Him for wisdom. God is not hiding His purposes from you. God's not hiding His purposes. He is revealing them to you right here in His Word. Well, James also reveals something to us about the character of God. He reveals something in this verse about the character of God. Uh, he, He tells us that God is a giving God. He is a gracious and giving God. Have you guys ever, maybe it's just me, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I can be a bad dad sometimes, but have your kids ever come to you and ask you for something and it's like at the exact moment that you finally get to sit down and rest for a little bit? Sometimes I think children wait around the corner and and they watch you and they say, okay, dad's just lowered his seat. Oh, now his feet are up, right? Oh, dad's throwing his head back. He looks pretty comfortable. His eyes are closed. Go, 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 (laughs) right? Ask him for something. Well, sometimes we can think about God in that way, that, that perspective of that kind of lazy earthly father that just can't be bothered with something right now, right? Sometimes we think that God's too busy to be bothered or maybe he doesn't care about this small issue that we're facing, 
But what James is telling us here is that God's nature is a giving nature. Look down at verse 5. This is a God who gives generously to all without reproach. Now, without reproach means that, you know, sometimes we can feel like I can't go to God and ask Him for something because, man, look at how I've sinned or, or look at how, you know, lazy I've been or I haven't prayed in a long time or this, that, or the, whatever excuse it is that we, that we might have about not approaching God. Well, God is a gracious God who is a giving God and He gives without reproach. He gives without holding those things against us. So it's not only that it's God's nature to give, but His giving is unrestricted. Right? He gives to all without reproach who ask in faith. Who ask in faith. So like in other parts of the Scripture, right? In other parts of the Bible, all here doesn't really mean all. <laughs> it, all here means that God gives to all without distinction. He gives good gifts to His children without distinction. But He doesn't give to all people without exception. Look at what James says next there in verses 6-8. through eight. When we ask for wisdom, we have to ask in faith, not doubt. Now, to be sure, I don't think James is saying here that we'll never have any doubts in our faith. We'll never have any doubts in our walk. Doubts are an inevitable part, inevitable part of the Christian life. There are times in the Christian life when you will have doubts. But if you've walked with Christ for any length of time, you know the difference between a doubt that is fleeting right, and the type of doubt that James is talking about here. James describes the doubter as a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. The doubter that James is talking about here is the type of person who is not wholeheartedly trusting in God, but one who has one foot in the things of heaven and who has one foot in the things of earth. This type of person reminds me of Job's wife. Remember Job's wife? Right? Job's a wise man. He's a very wealthy man. He has tons of uh, cattle, tons of livestock, tons of children. Everything's going great for Job. And then in a moment, all of that goes away. Right? His livestock are stolen or they died. His, his children die. His house burns to the ground. And there sits Job in a heap of ashes, scraping sores off of his body. And you remember what Job's wife said? Just curse God and die. Just curse God and die. Now, Job's wife was presumably okay with God when everything was going great. When the children were healthy, when the finances were good, when everything was perfectly fine. Job's wife, I'm good with God. I love God. Right? God's all right with me. But the moment all of that is snatched away, Job's wife says, just curse God and die. Do you remember what Job's response was? He says, go away. How, how can we accept the good things, the gracious things from God's hand and not all, also accept the hardship and the trial that comes from His hand? James is saying that this type of doubting purpose or person right, is the type of person, he's double-minded. He's got double allegiance, right? He's He's, he's willing to accept the good things from the hand of God, but he's not willing to accept the bad things that come from the hand of God. And he says that that person's doubt will cause them to be tossed to and fro like a wave in the sea. 
pretty vivid illustration. Have you guys ever been to the beach and gotten in the ocean maybe when you shouldn't have? Right? They got the, the yellow flag up and you're like, ah, it's all right. You ever been in the ocean when the waves are strong? It is a feeling of absolute terror and helplessness. Right? Those waves, just one after the other, after the other. That's what the person who this doubting person is like. Right? Like that person who is terrified, who's who's out of control. Now look at what James says about that person in verse 7. It says, That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. There's more to it than that. So we know that, that God gives graciously. He gives good gifts to His children who ask in faith. Those who are fully reliant and trusting in Jesus, He gives them good gifts in the middle of His trials, but there's more than that. Not only does God give you wisdom in the midst of your trials, you know what else God has given you? God has given you His Son. He's given you His Son. It's like the Apostle Paul said, how can we question if God would give us good gifts if He's already given us His Son? The fact that Jesus came and He lived and He died for us so that we might know God If God would send His Son to live and to die for you, how would He withhold from you any good thing? He won't. He won't. Okay? But how do I do this? How do I bear up underneath these trials? How how do I handle these things? Well, James goes on to answer us in in verses 9-11. through He says we shouldn't turn inward, but we should turn outward. Right? Our inclination of our sinful hearts is when we face trial uh, that we want to turn inward. But James is telling us we don't, we don't need to turn inward. We need to look outward. Point three in your notes. Point three. In the midst of your trials, set your hope in Christ, not in your circumstances. In the midst of your trials, set your hope in Christ, not in your circumstances. Now what James does here is, is really interesting. And again, at first glance, it can seem like he's off to a whole different topic. But that's, that's not the case. Right? He, he started out talking about trials and suffering, and then he moved on to talk about wisdom and faith and doubt. And now here he is talking about rich people and poor people. Well, it's all connected. It's all connected. The heart of what James is saying in, this, uh, or in these verses is that no matter what your circumstances are in life, no matter what your outward circumstances are in life, you need to look to Christ. Your faith needs to be in Jesus. Now, like I said before, it's part of our sinful human nature in the midst of our trials to turn inward, right? We got to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We need to set everything right again. We need to grit our teeth and just get through it. I especially want us to think about the rich person this morning that James talks about here, because I think all of us in this room, whether you feel like it or not, you fall into that category. You fall into the category of the rich person here, especially on a worldwide uh, perspective. Right? You're probably not wondering right now, am I going to get to eat today? Now, I can almost guarantee you, some of you are thinking, when is this guy going to wrap it up so I can go eat right now? But you're not wondering if you're going to get to eat today. Well, ultimately, what the Bible teaches us about our wealth is that wealth in and of itself is not sinful. 
being a rich person in and of itself is not sinful. But here's the thing. There is a danger in it. There is a danger in it. Those of us who have means, right, the danger is that we can build up idols in our own life and we can think that we are completely self-sufficient, that we don't need God. If I have a need for something, I'll just go out and buy it. I'll just go out and get it for myself. Jesus says a lot about wealth. He says that it can be a dangerous snare. He said that uh, this double-minded man, Jesus says, that a rich person cannot serve both God and money. You can't serve two gods. That's that double-minded doubter. Well, there's a danger in poverty as well. There's a danger in poverty as well. The danger in poverty is thinking that God isn't good to you. Thinking that He's withholding good gifts from you. So Solomon writes in Proverbs 30, he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. What James is saying here to the rich man and the poor man in these verses is the exact same thing. What he's saying is that we, James is saying the same thing. He's saying that, uh, that we should not look to our outward circumstances, but that we should look to Christ. He tells us don't, or he tells us to boast. But he says, don't boast in your circumstances, but to boast in Christ. The person who has little to nothing away money, person who is down and out, who is the lowest on the financial totem pole, he can boast in the fact that Christ has met him in his humiliation and has raised from the dead so that he can have new life in Christ. So the person with great wealth should not boast in their money, but should boast in the fact that our, our Savior, who had infinite wealth, perfectly satisfied with the Father in heaven, left all of those things and humbled Himself and came to the earth and died on our behalf. A person of great wealth should not boast in their money, but in the humiliation that is theirs, because they're joined together with Jesus. Why these two types of people shouldn't look at their circumstances? Why should we not look at our circumstances? It's because our circumstances are temporary. They're fleeting. James says, we ourselves are temporary and fleeting. Right? We're like the flower that, that blooms in the grass and then the sun comes out with scorching heat and the flower withers away. But not in Christ. Not in Christ. In Christ we have new life. In Christ we have new hope and a new future. So brothers and sisters, do not rely on yourself in the midst of your trials. Don't trust in your circumstances. Take comfort and take your sense of well-being in the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life for you and died on the cross to take your punishment for your sin and rose again from the dead so that those of us who have faith in Him can have every confidence in Christ. It's very easy in the middle of our trials to think, this will never end. I just can't see things getting any 
better. Well, if that's you this morning, Jesus says, I go and I prepare a place for you. Right? So that when I come again to take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There's coming a day when your trials and when your circumstances and when the uncertainty of this life will fade away. We'll be with Jesus forever. For those of us who are trusting in Christ, our hope is not in this world and our suffering and our trials is preparing for us that eternal weight of glory. Preparing us for that day when we will be with Jesus. Those trials are working for your good right now. So bear up. Set your feet on the solid rock of Christ. Keep going. Don't give up. Remain steadfast. Trust the good gift of Christ that God has given to you already. So how do you answer that question this morning? How do you answer the question, if God is so good, if God is sovereign and He's loving towards His children, then why would He allow us to face such trials? Wouldn't a good God spare His own faithful children from that kind of suffering? Well, for us as Christians, we know that He enters into our suffering. He bears our pain on the cross. And whatever situations the enemy tries to use to hurt us, God sovereignly uses those things to shape us and to mold us more into the image of His Son. Like a potter who takes a lump of dirty, wet, nasty mud and starts putting pressure on different parts of that mud to shape it and to mold it. And then that potter takes that lump of mud and throws it in a kiln, heats it up to a thousand degrees and just leaves it there. But what's the result? That dirty, nasty, wet clump of mud transforms into a beautiful and useful vessel. That's what God is doing. That pressure and that fire, that flame, it's like that potter that molds the pot. God is doing something in your life. So won't you trust Him today? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You're at work in our lives. We, we thank You, Lord, that, that we can trust You, Lord, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, no matter how small or how great they are, Father, that You are at work in our lives for our good, working all things together for our good and for the glory of Your Son, Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.